In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP-1 and SIP-2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through MDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to EBT. Another episode. That's right. Where we read so you don't have to, but we hope you do. <laughs> I love how that is changed. Just quick. Yeah. <laughs> we read so you don't have to with a little parenthetical. We still hope you do. I hope you do, please, because and it's somewhat our goal to go against our our subtitle. Yeah, it's so you don't have to, but we want you to. So we're gonna make it like as invitational, invitational. and engaging as possible, yeah. so that you do, because yeah. you're just like, what? I gotta know this science. Yeah, I mean, if we forced people to read, we'd just be creating object strategies. You mean like the whole education system? Uh. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. You can't see it, but I'm going to. Uh-oh. So today, here we are again to um, build on the conversation we've been having about memory reconsolidation. Um, but we're going to use another article from Ecker, uh, published in 2020, entitled How the Science of Memory Reconsolidation Advances the Effectiveness and Unification of Psychotherapy. Yeah. That's highlighted in and of itself, again, I want you to see the the lit review 
kind of like emerging yeah the lit- the literature review mind map that i've been you know that we've been kind of working on that this is a transition to further kind of articulate the critique of quote unquote evidence based therapies and that we don't need to be competing for the right one or even looking for the right one yeah um this gold standard is not a you know uh, google maps of like where you need to go to it's instead uh in our opinion a posture to cultivate yeah to learn to think and to learn to look for the breadcrumbs of uh just absolute subjectivity like authentic expression and really honoring how the human organism comes to be over time and why we may be the way that we are in a current environment yeah it's not just by happenstance yeah one thing i love about ecker's work is that it connects with the posture we hold in trainings and then i also hold with a lot of clients is like if you know the why you can sort of trust the process yeah if you know what's what's happening and you know why it makes sense mm. you can trust the human mammalian organism to be adaptively adjusting yeah. to life to continue yes. going to pursue integration i mean that's like so much of the writing of dan siegel and his yep. integrative work and what has brought you and i together since the very beginning oh yes yeah but i love that posture it's like you know use whatever feels resonant with you but take the time to understand why it's working yeah and to find the signs of what change what transformational change which is something Again. we talked a lot about last last yeah. podcast of what makes transformational change happen and how can we then like fine tune what we do mm-hmm. to aim at that rather yeah. than to just stumble through and say why isn't this manualized thing working or why isn't this treatment that i've used over and over again not working this time yeah so now we have some guideposts which yes. i love and, yes. and i love their posture is not like do it this way it's this is the process go of find the brain it. yeah yeah go find it right your way yeah the authentic way yeah and so we are going to cover this article today yes um true to the form of the of the podcast we want to make sure to cover uh as you know makes sense to us here now cover the material but we're also bridging into a larger conversation on evidence-based therapies like what is that and really kind of chasing this mongoose (laughs) of um what what is what is underneath this entire field in politics <laughs> in um you know really the heart of the the work the objective side you'll find that some it's not always the subject mm-hmm. it's not always the the heart of healing that's behind it yeah maybe it's it's a bit more objectified than that mm-hmm. And so when we apply science to this relational science or this relational kind of experience art yeah really when we apply yeah the science to art we have to check which you know and just our fundamental assumptions about the nature of the research what is it that we're actually looking at mm-hmm. because if you apply science to the object you're only going to measure the object yeah it's just a snapshot and you can either see if it passes or fails but if you apply the science to the art ongoing subjective experience that yeah. means it has to be flexible it has to move with it learn how mm-hmm. to communicate with the uh, thing it's being measured uh, the thing that it's measuring not just 
you know, measure the object. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's like a, the perfect segue because we've said, I think it was the first one, like the first podcast we did on memory consolidation, it was if there's ever change yeah. that is transformational and real, memory reconsolidation is the natural phenomenological process that is happening in the brain. Yes. So then whether you're doing EMDR or CBT or DBT or attachment interpersonal. AEDP. Like whatever you're doing, if there's change that is meaningful, it's this is what's happening and this is why. Yes. So then I love how the title kind of alludes to that this theory, this understanding, this phenomenological discovery advances the effectiveness and unification of psychotherapy. And I think if ever there was a wish of evidence-based therapies, it's to how do we create like the path of least resistance into effective and unified therapy. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that that's really what we're working on here at Beyond as well is how do we use this information and contextualize it in relationship to what else has been said? Because even, you know, you and I talking about this article before we started recording, it needs the foundation of conversations we've had before. That's why this episode is happening now, because we've had conversations about how this is still pretty tertiary in many ways in relationship to Poncep's primary affective circuitry and how that floats up into the brain using Perry's model, just as one three-step kind of integrative method of looking at this through the lenses that we've used before. Yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be a lot of callbacks implicitly (laughs) to work that we've done. Maybe explicitly. Yeah. I'm sure they'll come up, but um, in a way as well, this conversation assumes quite a bit of fluency in some of our language. So yeah, I'm, very excited. Yeah, I, I feel anticipatory networks firing uh, all over the dopamine's place. Dopamine's just kind of knocking at the door. It's just, just like, yeah. Hey, buddy. Hey, you ready? What do you <laughs> What do you want? When are we launching? Yeah. yeah. When are we going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the ways into this article for me is just talking about transformational change. Yeah. Like they give a definition, at least a characteristic definition. Yeah. In this of the, the transformational change, and I think we're gonna maybe have some qualms with it let's talk about it yeah let's talk about it for sure um but in this the whole goal is to see more clearly uh the process of change that we feel is characterological in nature yeah it's deeper than just a state yeah of behavior or symptom reduction Yeah. yeah i also maybe want to point out like in this moment that um there's there's an implicit connotation i think around Whenever people, and I think this is not, it, I would, I, my optimist wants to say that this is not the original intent of the scientific field. Hmm. And maybe it's been co-opted by a more cultural pattern of um, discourse engagement. But anytime you start reading something and you start noticing the limitations and you start talking about that, oh, yeah. it's not, a, we're not dismissing or demeaning mm. Ecker's work at all. Yeah. We're saying yes and. Yes. Like, yes, this is brilliant. And we've said that for four episodes <laughs> of memory reconsolidation. So yeah. yes. We're clearly this yeah, is sort of advocates. the episode where we kind of say, it is missing some spots. It maybe does need some kind of add-ons. 
and the intent of it unifying and exciting positive changes in the field of psychotherapy makes total sense then why it had to kind of go beyond what maybe it had already kind of collectively made. Yeah, I think this is an opportunity to take a small loop on this idea that you're talking about because you and I have spent hours talking about this at this point of really our field is experiencing, I think, and I would say we think, um, is a result of something that's endemic within how we view education, Hmm. which is that it's not about the thing. It's about seeing the thing and then learning how to include it as you go on from it. Yeah. Yeah. We use the words transcend and include. That's right. Or other like paradigms, like the whole idea of emergent processes is this. You have two separate things that come together and what emerges is a third Mm -hmm. that is both containing of the two separate entities, but different. Itself different. Yeah. Yes. Because the two have combined yes resynthesized right yeah and that's the whole point that's the whole point it's not about mastering the first thing yeah it's about going on from it after you've really wrestled with it yeah yeah and i think that's beautiful and i it's it's not a like i think people could i mean there's a temptation and gripe of like you're just like talking trash on other people's research it's like no i not at all yeah i i Ecker's work is amazing. And if we add these couple pieces, yeah. geez, do we get a full picture? Yeah. And that's important. Yeah. That's beautiful. I was listening again to, sorry, this is just like a deep. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I was listening again because uh, a friend of mine brought up Jordan Peterson. Hmm. And so I was talking to them if they'd ever listened to the Zizek Peterson debate, debate yeah. over happiness and capitalism versus Marxism, et cetera. Um, and so I was just like kind of poking around in the video again. I've listened to it many times at this point, but, uh, this time it was interesting. What stood out to me is, um, there's an argument made where one of the fundamental components of proposing an argument is to assume that you're wrong. Mm. And I think that's a bit, that language is, connotes a bit of a pessimistic view. Yeah. Whereas for me, I would say that it, maybe an altering that of whenever you propose an argument or a line of reasoning, knowing or assuming that you don't see it all. There's more. Yes. Yeah. That that instead of just I'm wrong. And so how am I wrong? Just saying, what else is there beyond this? Because I feel like that is our posture towards psychotherapy, towards evidence-based therapy, towards research in general, because we're putting out, and sorry if you guys hear the dogs, um, there's yeah. dogs right outside your door. Yeah. They're just guarding the podcast. Yeah, know? yeah, that's a good way. Let's reframe that. There's probably someone it. out there who wants to interrupt the podcast more, but they're and they're keeping that from keeping happening. it from happening by interrupting themselves. Look at that. I find safety in stories <laughs> that help me reframe my affective experience, and so yes, yeah, yeah. And so you're here <laughs> with us, but that I think is our posture so much. <laughs> It's like louder than normal, I feel like. It is. They're like right outside the door. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, But that's our posture, I think, as a whole, just in even our theory creation, as we propose, um, we have a model that is well-articulated and robust in its references, but we still are digging. 
We're just like, this is what we found so far. Yeah. There's and more I, breadcrumbs. Yeah. And I think it's great, but transcend and include it. Do yeah. not stop. I yeah. don't want people that take our trainings to try to master it. That's not the point, really. The point is to spur you on, like build on the foundation there and say, okay, what else? Yeah. And that posture, I love that. Yeah. Takes away any pressure that I feel of like, oh, did we get it right? Mm. No. But it's not about right or wrong. Yeah. What's here? Yeah. We got some of it and we're going to continue to keep chasing more and seeing more clearly what we didn't see before. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you going on that little loop with me because I, I want to be very clear in our posture towards yeah. like why maybe we say, oh, I disagree with that or, well, that feels like it's missing or um, yeah. it's not like a sort of posture of like we know better. It's a... Yeah. Ooh, maybe like in their precision, there's like another another piece another dynamic this. that was missed. Right. So here's the transformational therapeutic change as defined by this article. Uh, and this is again a 2020 publication. So there's three main points here. Transformational change includes the disappearance of a symptom, an unwanted behavior, affect, cognition, or somatization. So that's the first one. Second one. Transformational change includes the disappearance of, a, of the symptoms accompanying emotional activation. Here's an interesting language. Or distressed ego state. Okay. First time they've thrown out ego state Yeah, language. just going to toss that in there. Interesting. <laughs> Haven't talked about it in Haven't any of the work before. before. So I, ah, interesting. And no citations here either. So I don't really know what the language they're using means to them. But okay. And the third one, the permanent effortless persistence of those two changes. Okay, so again, symptom reduction, very simply. Uh, so that could be an unwanted behavior is, you know, ceased, affect changes or cognition and or somatization changes. And the disappearance of the symptoms accompanying emotional activation or distressed ego state. You need to see those in persistent uh, absence for it to be transformational change. Which right there, is it possible to... And this is just me being like genuinely curious. Is it possible to have accompanying accompanying emotional activation or distress in my ego state without there being the unwanted behavior, affect, cognition, and or somatization? I think the order, though, they're not one, two, three. It's just a bulleted list. I think perhaps the order might matter to them okay. of like the first one would come. Obviously, if you get rid of the symptom, then you then the accompanying emotional activation or distress within the ego state will dissolve. Perhaps. I think that calls into question again, you can get rid of a symptom through extinction, okay. but I think they're noting that that second piece is evidence good. of the erasure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think. I would like that. But language. again, yeah, I would like that language to be here. Because <laughs> I think erasure and extinction make a lot of sense in my mind. Yeah. And I think that's... And I think that that... I mean, I don't know. Do you think that that tracks with this? I, they yeah, don't yeah. use that, that language. language. That would be, yeah, that's that's a good way to say that. Yeah. And then the, the effortless persistence of those two changes mm -hmm. being carried out over right. across time. So with these, and you may have just touched on it, but I'm curious for you even as you hear those read, because transformational change, I think, is what the, the field of psychotherapy, I would argue, needs to be focused on. How do you feel about this as an operational definition for transformational change. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I already, I I think I would, I would like it put in like the language that we're already using with yeah. extinction and erasure. Yeah. Of we're seeking erasure. We're seeking the the full reworking of old neural networks, not the reprioritization yeah. of new strategies. Yeah, to where you don't even need these strategies. Yeah, yeah. Or the yeah. ones you even learned the first place. In yeah. The first place. Yeah. I think what feels a little dif- difficult is they 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 tell this interesting line between like talking about the disappearance of a symptom mm-hmm. and an unwanted behavior, affect, cognition, and or somatization. But then they, I think what I wrestle with is that language gets really muddy because it's strikingly close to when they also say you do not deconsolidate a affect network you, you or a behavior or a behavioral network it's schematic it's yeah yes that i guess my my like tension with it is the language even within itself and yeah and the muddiness of it um and not so much like the idea i think when you conceptualize their whole work and you're generous to their intent i think it feels okay to me yeah um but i do think some of it connotes um, in ways that are like it makes me tilt my head yeah same and i yeah that i like that that uh language as a sort of takeaway of it because it does make me do the same thing of like hmm, i don't know it doesn't feel quite right yeah yeah interesting um, so in that, the, tra- the reason kind of talking about the transformational change is that from there, they then go on in the article to talk about erasure. And I think that that's a great kind of segue um, because in that, um, they're not, we're not highlighting, and this is some of their language, we're not highlighting any particular external procedure, but rather the internal occurrence of these three subjective experiences. Um, these three being those, the comments that were just made. Um, so I like the focus on the subjective, obviously that, that was going to stand out to me. Um, but in that really talking about the erasure then of what is the reconsolidation of the schematic, making sense of the world through the experience. Yeah. That that's really what we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. They, they differentiate a lot in this between semantic memory and episodic memory. Mm-hmm. And erasure is shifting this semantic memory networks yes. or the semantic memory. Um, not so much did it happen and, mm. and what was the affective experience in the episode and how that has been kind of internalized in the episodic memory, but what was learned based mm. off of that and then kind of reapplied or reciprocally conditioning for the future and how to be and what to look out for and um, how to use that episodic memory as like a generalizable fact. Right. Okay. Well, I was, I was there, something bad happened in a dark space. Well, okay. It's not, we're not deconsolidating and reconsolidating what actually happened, like the dark spaces and stuff, but the semantic memory of, what, that what means I about the world meaning about that yeah so i like that right there so in this section and what i want to name this structure and then we'll circle back to that comment that you just made so in this section of the erasure of an emotional learning they just basically go through the three steps of memory reconsolidation again um, and this is to build context for a case example that they give but in this conversation so let's go with what you just said the 
uh, something happened in a dark space. So therefore I learned that I'm not safe in dark spaces, Yep. period. If it gets dark, I'm not safe. Yep. Okay. So with that, I don't think, uh, I would argue that it's necessary for you to have a triune perspective on the brain because you can't just, one of the limitations I have felt in the literature on memory reconsolidation is that it's focused on the schematic, which is often really concerned with articulation, mm. with, with what is what can be said about that mm, experience. Yeah. So you could be talking about, you know, the, the client or patient could be talking about this fear that they have of the dark. And maybe we even connect it back explicitly to a, an experience that they had. Yeah. And you could then just hold those two and say, well, have you ever been in a situation where something bad didn't happen? And then we talk about like that, plus the positive experience of us talking about it in the now, that should change it, right? Yeah. But I don't think that that's really a thorough understanding of why that being felt unsafe in the dark in the first place. Yeah. Just because something bad happened. Hmm. I think it's about more than that. I think it's about, again, like that Ponksep Perry Ecker chain. Yeah. Yeah. Say more about what you mean then about, like, you think it's about more. I think that the darkness is the, the most, perhaps like the most consistent thread to weave through the fear. But I think it was that the darkness made possible a violation of what I know about the world, which is that if I can see it, I have control over it. Or, you know, in some way, the darkness made it possible for that to happen. So just to go at the darkness, I don't think is the only thing that we need to be talking about. Yeah. Thinking about Ponksep's affective circuits, it's not just that fear is associated with, with that out of control. And so that seeking is going to identify darkness as, oh, that's the thing that makes us feel afraid. But we're also alone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're also like, you know, it's yeah. so paired with an inability to maintain homeostatic balance. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's like, to me, and I appreciate you going a little bit further with that, because that's where it gets really muddy when you start talking about the categorization of memory. Mm -hmm. oh, um, I love that we're talking because, about Because, yes. Yeah. Basically, the structure is, you know, you have your, um, you have your um, wor working memory, mm. and then you have, um, um, now I'm, I can see the graph in my head, but essentially you have in your, you have explicit and implicit forms mm -hmm. of memory, and you have um, working, you also have short term uh, semantic, yeah, yeah. and then you have procedural, mm -hmm. and What's interesting is that like those categories in language feel very different. Like there's a lot of like space yeah. it feels like between those categories, but like those are categorizing types of memory that we and made that we made. Like we said, and that, that <laughs> like, gets really complex when you bring in Perry's work, which I love that you're talking about mm -hmm. where all that you are is memory. Mm -hmm. And then you could also bring in Edtronic's work yeah. of at every level of life, meaning is being made. And so then memory is being stored yeah. for the 
like guiding of life activity and energy. Yeah. yeah. So then I, like to say, cause I love in your, in the example that we're going with, like, it's not the dark, the dark would be episodic. Yeah. The semantic is what the dark, what's the fact Exploited. about the dark yeah. that then required my procedural memory of defensive activation. And that's it. like to focus, I can see why they focus on the semantic because it's, um, and this semantic, I'm saying semantic, you're saying schematic. They're basically the same thing. Yeah. In the field, you say semantic memory, yeah. but really what you're talking about is the internal schematic structures Working that semantic model. memory holds. Yeah. yeah. And if you change semantic memory, then you change the, the following procedural connection yes. that then creates the behavioral activation, which that's what they're all about is right. like, what's the symptom behavior that we need to um, complete an erasure process with, but it gets super muddy because it's not just yeah. like, it is not just the dark. No. There's so many factors in there. And when you bring in Poncep's work, the world of experience in those moments that need to come into therapy for it to be fully reactivated, I think is the tricky part that we've mentioned before on when he's talking about, you know, these networks, reactivation can sometimes be a lot. Yes. Because they're big and the, the, the parts of the brain are so interconnected deep in that hind and midbrain structures that, you know, to activate all of those parts to make sure they're working together and the brain isn't fragmenting and it's holding a co-regulated tolerable space, like that's hard. And sometimes the language is so tertiary focused. It's, it's, that's exactly it's, it. Yeah. It, I don't want to say it's cognitive because they're, it, they're, they're walking such a fine line, but I think they're, they're constructurally like limiting themselves. I like the idea of tertiary because I'm, and I'm thinking of concepts overlapping uh -huh. that we've used on our triune brain drawing. Yeah. And um, for listeners, Poncep has like a triangle, three-tiered primary processes, which is homeostatic yep. affect, sensory affect, and emotional affects that go into the secondary processes of the brain, which are through the basal ganglia, cerebellum, um, and the kind of midline structures in which learning is formulated and then um, expressed through emotional activation. Yep. And then you have your tertiary processes, which is your intent to act out executive of the moment, executive functioning. So, yes. Yeah. Just for, for the listeners. No, totally. Yeah. 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 So with that, the, the overlap of the kind of ovals, if you remember that yes. drawing. Yeah. Um, in, in the overlap there, you start to you start to blur the lines between structure and function because it to say that schemas are cognitive is a farce like that's not true though they often are identified at, through the cognitive articulation but they are deeper in that and you know yeah. you think about locating them in the limbic system of the attachment brain and things like that like sure but also, still even deeper than that, you have these affective bundlings, these roots that are deep within these very dense primitive reptilian structures in the brain that are creating such an immense force that the cognitive tertiary processes don't have time to respond in the way that 
those lower structures do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like we've, we've left the article <laughs> and maybe we'll come back and maybe we won't. I don't Because know. this is somewhat of like a... We're on page two. An articulation so. of memory reconsolidation and how we see it's... I have Edgar limitations Perry and, and Punk separate, right? There. Oh, so yeah. It's in your margin so we can talk about it. Yeah. That's right. Perfect. We're on page two. Yeah. We're on page two for the readers. Uh, <laughs> You did not write all of this in your margins, by the way, yeah. <laughs> which would have been crazy. But maybe I did with these three names. Like, yeah, maybe. The space maybe. between. Sorry, I keep it. Yeah, what I was, what I'm thinking though is like, um, well, actually, I've lost it. Dang it! It's okay. It'll come back. Like I say to clients, if it was important at one moment, it'll be important again. Yeah, maybe to spark the the interest. Like I was talking about how quick those lower structures respond, and it's in a way that those tertiary processes just don't have the ability to catch up with. So when you think of schema, you can't just think cognition because it's actually emergent from Perry's neurosequential firing. Yeah. Yeah. It still didn't quite come, but the, I'm, I have the gut feeling of like, there's the pieces that you said and I know it'll come back. Yes. So okay. Let's so, move on because yeah. it does feel good to return to the article. Right. So holding that, you know, something bad happened in the dark. Um, so therefore I've labeled schematically, semantically that any bad things could happen in the dark. And so you should just be afraid of the dark. Yeah. We need to look deeper than just that as a working model for how the self is oriented in the world, because it's not just the dark. Yeah. It's so much more than that. It's that that exploited your frailty in the face of an uncontrollable environment. Yeah. And that you're alone, you're powerless, you're helpless, like all of it was exposed and we wrapped it up in saying that it's about the dark. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Which, okay, it's not. And that's what the brain like needs to know. And that's why that's I think real. in a way, like I want to redeem them in their use of semantic. It's muddy, but if you really like dig into it, it is deep mm -hmm. because if you if you like do any little bit of reading on semantic memory, what you'll find is like this overgeneralization of um, like it's just the part of your brain that knows facts about the world, and that seems like well that doesn't make any sense with what Becker's <laughs> saying until you realize oh wait a second these are subjective yeah these are subjectively internalized facts about the world that then become the way they see the world that is incongruent and quote unquote maladaptive so socially, societally, culturally, and require new reworking, which yeah. is a reconsolidation. So you're right, it's not about the dark, but in the brain, it collected all of that and overstored it. It, right. it put it in a generalizable category right. in the brain semantic memory that then gets used for future behavioral activation and right. emotional expression. Right. And again, it's survival positive. And one of, the, one of the components of survival positive cognitive recall is that it doesn't need to be questioned. It's don't, don't argue or like don't call into our body the like nature of being human in this existential peril of I will die one day. Don't like mess around with that. Just fear the dark and like <laughs> yeah. move on because like that's that's way simpler 
um, in terms of energy expenditure and resource allocation than arguing or trying to like <laughs> wrestle with yeah. the frailty of humanity. Yeah. Well, and, and even wrestling with that is intolerable to the individual system. It's and so you need co-regulation. Therefore. Yeah. 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 And so your brain collapses into, well, that's uh, a protective, overgeneralizable <laughs> fact, quote unquote, about the world yeah. that we can then utilize in our learned way of being to keep us safe. Right. Survival positive. Right. So when we think about erasure with a with a schema like that, we're looking for, again, those components of the symptoms uh, driven by the target learning cease to occur, the target learning itself, which previously was felt as a potent and horrible truth of the world, no longer feels true or real, and is not reactivated by situations that formerly did so, eliminating a problematic, distressed ego state. And those changes persist effortlessly and permanently. So again, if we're sticking with this smaller example of afraid in the dark, it would you would learn somehow through a corrective emotional experience and a mismatched experience that uh, it's not just the dark. Like it's okay. The dark is actually not bad. Yeah. Uh, the dark is neutral. It just is. Yes. So with that, then we can look deeper into what keeps you feeling like fragmentation is necessary. Yeah. In this place. And we can keep going towards that initial emotional learning that taught you that. Yes. With that, I want to spend a little bit of time on the distressed ego state. Okay. What do you think about that? <laughs> distressed? I don't know. Because they, they use it so loosely here. Um, but you, I saw you were also digging for something. Did you? No, I was finding just some thoughts for maybe later. Okay. Um, because the language here, again, we... I think just take issue with on the just like eliminating a distressed ego state. That's not how we view this work as that's not a goal of ours is to eliminate an ego state or a part of self that was fragmented due to the working models felt peril in the world. Yeah. The second you say that my body's like, Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the tension of that's what's being said right tension. here. The disappearance. Yeah. The elimination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, eliminating a problematic distressed ego state. Yeah. That's objectification. Yeah. Like that's the only way that that's possible. So then from an SIP perspective and from, you know, if you integrate, oh man, let's go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you integrate Perry, Punk, Sepp, Alan Shore's work, the attachment theory work, yep. I mean. Janina from, Fisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Object oh, relations theorists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wouldn't be the disappearance of the ego state. Right. It would be the Integration, integration of the ego state that leads to a, a um, reorganization of strategies that the ego state utilizes. Yeah, resulting in the felt sense of my mind and body both agree that I'm safe in connection. Yes. That's what we're yeah. going for. And that's yeah. not just a semantic <laughs> further nuance of that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let's stick with linguistic for simplicity. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's not just a linguistic quibble. That's very meaningful because it shows the goal of the therapy not being to eliminate a part of self, but to integrate it, which assumes that you understand why it did that in the first place. Yeah. Again, viewing it as adaptive, yes. which is fundamental. Yeah. And yeah. And I, you know, I've been playing around just in therapy, conceptualizing like in very broad terms that if there is um, tension or what a client would call quote unquote maladaptive experiences or like unhealthy experiences. Yeah. Dysfunctional. That, dysfunctional. Yeah. yeah. 
that's just a signal to me that integration is needed. Yep. And integration is a LinkedIn differentiation of the brain yes. and the networks there. So when we talk about not disappearing an ego state, it means that we, the brain will bring that ego state into associative connection mm. that is both linking and still holding a differentiated state from the rest of the brain which then makes the brain more complex, which means it makes it more healthy based on all of Dan Siegel's integrative work, which means that we're not trying to get rid of the person's subjectivity. We just want each part of the person's subjectivity to be connected with the other parts. Yeah, work with reciprocal communication, yeah. flow of energy and information. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Linked and differentiated. Yep. 100%. Yeah. And I, healthy I, mind is an integrated mind. Yes. And I love that you bring that up of the dis, the disappearance of the distressed ego state. That would be trauma again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> like, get rid of that. Yeah. I mean, it's inherently shame filled. Yeah. That that part is to blame. That's bad. Yes. No. Yeah. No. And we're, we're, we are to give the article it's due. We are talking beyond what it speaks to. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps the authors would take issue for the way we're characterizing the language. Yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps. But I don't see any citations on any of that language about ego state and the justification for seeking to erase or eliminate it. Yeah. That's not, yeah, that's not yeah. quite right. So that's why I wanted to bring it up. Yes. That. Oh, yeah. 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 Because with SIP, I mean, that's completely opposite, though we believe in memory reconsolidation and integrate the theory. Fully. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is this a good time to talk about counteractive reflex or? I think it's a great time because I want to talk about then. Yes, I think so. Sorry. <laughs> <Multiple thoughts. laughs> yes, I think so because I then want to set the scene for the case example and we can pull that apart a little okay. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So then one of the ideas that I really like from Ecker and he brings it up more in this is the counteractive reflex that therapists have. Oh, I love that. And he talks about... Um, you know, many therapists conduct therapy as guided by their own counteractive reflex, an almost universal tendency to disconnect from, suppress, oppose, and fix unwanted states of mind and behaviors by focusing on building up preferred states of mind and behaviors. So I, when we're talking about, you know, the disappearance of a distressed ego state or even the um, disappearance of a symptom, mm -hmm. I think there's a potential that if you don't also read Ecker's posture towards the counteractive reflex, that you could miscategorize that as like, we want to avoid, we want to like get rid of quickly. Yes. But remember like memory reconsolidation wants to reactivate mm -hmm. and, to and step be into. into those spaces of yeah. discomfort, distress. You have to, from Pongsep's model using a, a Bruce Perry view of Pongsep through the neurosequential so flow of the brain. You have to activate the experiencing self, the primary processes to then like emerge up into their gut impulse of mm. learning. Mm. And then what do you, where do you want to go? What do you want to say? What do you want to do? How do you, how do you make meaning of this moment yeah. in protecting yourself for the next? And then that's where you mismatch and in yes. new learning ha, yeah you don't run away from that you can't like that and you don't dismiss it you don't, you don't minimize it you don't try to push it into its uh, disappearing realm yes like yes you that would be turning like this is again to use some of like stolero and some of our discussions on bromberg like the not me you would 
be turning it into a not me. Yeah. It's over there. But it is a it is a me to it them. Is, it is a me. Yeah. yeah. You would be trying to turn it into a not me, which is further fragmenting. Yes. And increasing, you know, you think of our self-state language, you're increasing the pressure and the yeah. distance experienced by that self-state, banishing it to an unacceptable range. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love that. Yeah. That language and I think like holding that integrative posture towards Ecker and that's what his like yeah. desire is to communicate which again in, in the reading sometimes feels like it's not quite connected and you have to do some some leg some work, leg work. Yeah. yeah yeah but i get it you know you just you write a phenomenological experience or you discover it and then you write a synthesis of how it applies to psychotherapeutics and how it wants to Things integrate the bit. field as a whole and create effective therapy, you might you got some not complex connect logic some there. Dots. You might miss some pieces. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or just un, you know, not develop more fully you know, yeah. the thought on that. Yes. Um did you did you cover I think that's we're gonna come back to that for yeah. sure. But we'll come back to it, but that feels it's like an a impulse good... that I think is not only true in therapists, but potentially in academia. Oh researchers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like we're seeing here. Yeah. We're afraid of that volatile state. And so perhaps it's to blame for this unacceptable or dysfunctional behavior or emotion. So yeah. let's maybe get rid of that. Yeah. Seeing it as something that, you know, a, a negative consequence of the initial emotional learning. Yeah. Oh, this ego state came along. Dang it. We got to get rid of it. Yeah. 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 I, you know, there's part of me that wants to like spin up more on that. But I know. I'll just, I'll just say a quick comment of, um, you know, you're either, this goes back to Crittenden in our first oh, one of our first episodes you're either augmenting the dismissive strategy or you're further stressing and therefore also augmenting the preoccupied strategy yeah if you push the affect away the primary processes away and say like let's not go into those zones of primary experience yeah. you will either collude with the dismissive that says yeah let's fragment right or you'll increase the need to th scream from the the preoccupied yeah. attachment style. Yeah. Uh, fragment and banish mm. in the dismissive or fragment and amplify. Yeah. In the... Yeah. Yeah. Cut, in, in, turn in, up. Mm -hmm. Cut, turn up. And so it's just this booming chamber of overwhelming affect. Yeah. Which is something that I'll, I'll use with clients sometimes. Is like, what happens if you don't listen to a baby? Like if they're screaming, what happens? You know, usually, at least to some degree, they'll scream louder. Yeah, and they want For your some attention. Time. Your body's going to do the same thing if yeah. we don't pay attention to this. Yes, and I think that's a very powerful mental picture because eventually the baby does stop, and when it learns to stop, hard to hear anything again. Yeah, from that baby. Yeah, and you'll get more backdoor struggles like. IBS. Tina. Let's yep. talk about Tina. Yeah, let's talk about Tina. This is the case example. Tina. Yeah. Tina is the case example that they give to sort of yeah. explore what does memory reconsolidation and the empirically confirmed process of erasure, yeah. the ECPE, um, look like in a case. Yes. So I'm going to read some of the initial kind of report of Tina so that we can kind of intro it narratively getting into... Uh... Well, that's a noise. Wow, that wasn't new. That. That's a siren. I've never siren. heard that siren. 
That was a novel experience for both of us. Yeah, we we're just like, like looked. <laughs> what is that? Sound? Yeah. Interesting. We're in the city. Yeah. Um, okay. Tina, 33 uh, years old, began her first therapy session by saying, I've been feeling depressed and lousy for years. I have a black cloud around me all the time. She described a total absence of motivation, low energy, thorough social isolation, great difficulty doing her part-time at-home work of writing grant proposals, and much self-denigration and self-pathologizing. She said, I'm a vegetable. I'm a worthless nothing that nobody could possibly find interesting. She had previously tried therapy, self-help groups, and Prozac, and was now taking Wellbutrin, but none of those had helped. More as an expression of hopelessness than curiosity, she said, I just don't know why I can't be happy. There was indeed a definite reason, but it was in her implicit emotional learnings outside of awareness. Bringing that underlying emotional learning into direct, explicit awareness as a subjectively felt emotional truth would set it up as a target of change through memory reconsolidation therapy. So that's Tina. Got narratives coming out of, I've been feeling depressed and lousy for years. I have a black cloud around me all the time. I'm a vegetable. I'm worthless. Nothing that nobody could possibly find interesting. Hmm. I just don't know why I can't be happy. So then there's the kind of progression that they give, which is, um, you know, they're wanting to find, they use the phrase symptom coherence, mm -hmm. which is essentially one of the things that we talk about is why does it make sense? How does it? Yeah. 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 Why does the symptom actually create some sort of coherence? the vegetative state the mm -hmm. like depressive sort of like shut down collapsed. shut down dorsal state why does that create some sense of coherence yeah. in their world right um and i think that's a brilliant posture yeah um I, I think that that no matter the symptom presentation from schizophrenia to debilitating anxiety and depression or whatever it is seeing how does this make sense in terms of object relations like, and that's really like where you are in space time as a self, you know, around, surrounded by others. How are you making sense of the world? Yeah. And using this as a very strategic tool for mm -hmm. that balance you're trying to find. Yeah. Yeah. So then, speaking of, you know, all of those theories and um, object relations and stuff, yeah. they recall that the therapists um, then inquired about the family of origin. The foo. The foo. <laughs> and uh, said that Tina described painful memories of several incidents and then in a summary said flatly, saying what I'm really feeling or caring about gets me mowed down so I don't go there. Mm. And the therapist then asks, how do you keep yourself from going there? They give a little kind of anecdote. That question arose from the therapist's assumption of symptom coherence, meaning it makes sense. And it brought Tina's awareness deeper into an area where awareness had never gone. Her eyes darted around as she recognized and voiced with animation by being dead, apathetic, and telling myself I have nothing interesting to say. So then they go on to recognize, oh, so if you have nothing to say, it can't get mowed down. So then the symptoms of, you know, the depressed dorsal, like, a self-limiting, self-insulating mm -hmm. strategy actually starts to make sense in the schematic view of, well, if I did have something, it would get mowed down. Yeah. 
That's the learning. Right. And it it's interesting also that with that, the response was to collapse even affectively and behaviorally, not just to learn not to share things. Yeah. Not just to keep it all inside, but to shut it down even from its origin, which I think is, again, where you might look at that first part and just say, oh, we just need to get you out of the house. We just need to get you into some situations where, you know, you can have fun outside, maybe have one relationship where, you know, you get some positive feedback and let's resource that relationship and maybe get your job addressed a bit, see see if that's really what kind of authentically would lead you into a place of mm. health and just focus on that side. But that's not where the problem actually lies. It went a step deeper than that, even still, to I'm going to shut it away from myself as well. And so I think that's an important piece to go deeper on. Yeah. Why did that part make sense? I get why you didn't share. It was going to be mowed down. But why did you keep it even from yourself? Yeah. 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 Almost like she couldn't help but yes. share. And this is where, again, our conceptualization, I think, is is so helpful in looking at perhaps the experience of any thought made me fear the intolerable kind of fear of others are more in control of me than I am. Mm -hmm. Like, so let's just shut it out completely. Because if I have it in my head, maybe somebody could still hurt me. Yeah. But if I don't have it in my head, I'm blameless. Like I have nothing to show you. Yeah. I just don't have anything. So there's nothing that you can take from me, nor there's nothing that you can reject of me. Yeah. I'm not even here. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said dismissive earlier because you can certainly hear the omission of affect <laughs> yes. and the distortion of cognition. Right. Like, Absolutely. I'm this way. I'm this way. I'm this way. Identify, but, identify, identify. Wait a sec. That's, those are, there's a ton of distortions there. Yeah. And where's the affect? Yeah. Where's that? Apathy is not affect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a choppy. That's, yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So in that, um, the therapist helps her complete. Uh, does a lot of I think just free association with with questions, which I think is good because you're getting out some of the mechanisms that generate responses, which rely on the integrity of the self other internal working model yeah so i think open questions are a great way Um, but the therapist now invited tina to let this sentence complete itself without pre-thinking if they know i'm doing things that matter to me what would happen and so that's where eventually it goes is uh, to make a longer story short the the therapist helped tina discover that the reason that she didn't share is because not only that she gets mowed down but that uh they don't value the things that matter to her and so yeah. they're not going to hear her out or help her express herself in that way. Yeah. So by asking this question, if they know I'm doing things that matter to me, why I can't let it go in the present, then she'll take it, is what Tina says. Mom will take it away, just like she did when I was younger. Yeah. 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 And then they move on from there to talk about, you know, and this is multiple sessions, so yeah. noticing that. Um I don't know if you have something, so I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. Well, just that I erased myself. Yeah. Yes. To keep mom from taking it, I erased myself. Yes. And I'm I'm still erased now. I'm not even a person now. This is yeah. actually the conclusion she comes to. Yeah. And and I 
And then the therapists or the therapist in another session um, really dives into the what's the term of attachment that was there. So if I've, if I have something, it's yours. So then that's where the, if I erase myself, you can't take anything. So then it's like, that's a scaffolded process of learning. And so they've just chipped away through memory consolidation to some of these core spaces of the learned way to be. Yep. And then once they find that term of attachment that, um, it was visible that, Mom sees everything. I don't have anything that mom doesn't see. Yeah. So then rather than having something that mom doesn't see, I'll just negate everything. Yes. Because I didn't know it was a possibility that I could have an experience that mom doesn't see, that I could own a behavior or a desire that mom doesn't see. Yeah. So then they kind of quickly, interestingly shift to like say like once Tina like had that realization of, oh my goodness, I can have things in my life that mm-hmm. my mom doesn't see. Then that got generalized into all of her other relationships. And she started, there was kind of the um, effortless c- cessation of mm-hmm. the self-negation. And it became yep. this, she had a job, she was involved in groups. And then all of a sudden, she's six months later checking in, two month, two years later checking in. And it's yeah. the s- sustaining of that, um, change was there and yes. it came from what was that what was the term of attachment and what was the way you organized yourself other representations yeah and i think with that there's an important element of addressing the present uh experience of these symptoms because if we do all this past work great but does that necessarily inform how you should be in the present and they get at that by saying no and tina states uh um it says Tina's state of mind slumped again as she grimly realized and explained to the therapist that her mother is still the same. So it feels as dangerous and scary as ever to care about anything and have any of her own interests and pursuits or to even imagine revealing any such thing to her mother. And with that, we're, we're challenging that the past will repeat itself. Yeah. Again, why are you scared? Why are you afraid of the dark? Because bad things happen in the dark. They did before, but maybe that also wasn't just because of the dark. But why are you projecting it into the present? Mm. It's the same underlying fear is still there. Yeah. I'm very vulnerable to complete annihilation. And the dark makes me feel like I'm one step closer to that. Yeah. So just avoid the dark. Yeah. It's a sensory cue. If I, It's a redrawing of the lines closer and closer right. to myself. So yeah. why maintain your depression even still? Well, because if I have something she's still going to take it. Yeah. So I still can't be a fully functioning adult. I can't be a person. Or parsing out some of that tension of, well, are you the same as you were back then? Like, are you completely dependent? And that's where kind of my mind went. I'm not sure what what you made of this, but my mind went into standing up to her mother wasn't possible and she had no interpersonal resources. So she went away inside back then. She didn't have anywhere else to blow off steam or to get an alternative experience. She couldn't stand up to her mother also. And so instead she just buried herself inside Yeah, and resolved to never come out Yeah, again. Yeah. And it's important again to like see that that is like 
recipro reciprocally conditioning of how she then experiences the world now. Yeah. She literally sees the world like the neurobiological systems of sensory integration see the world according to this deep self other representation that has that is trying to keep her safe. Yes. And so, yeah, she sees the world as I can't even now mm. go out. She works, she, it even mentioned early on that she works from home part time. Yeah. Like from her computer. Yeah. So like, I'm no not even going to like interface. own it out there in the world. Like, yeah. I'm just going to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so with that conceptualization of no walls is where she identifies finally that she just felt like her mom had absolute power in her like what mattered to her so she felt like she had no walls no boundaries no ability to exact that uh individuation and autonomy in herself and grow mm -hmm. into a healthy uh resilient human uh she was still buried back in that little girl's body yeah. essentially and so the article goes on to read that that mental model formed in early childhood on the basis of myriad interactions between them and then reinforced by myriad interactions all through growing up was the very basis of the feeling of endangerment that made Tina's self-zeroing urgently necessary. She was solving the problem of selfhood robbery by having nothing to rob, a very costly solution that impoverished her mind and her life. The possibility of solving the problem by having walls, boundaries, and privacy from her mother had never existed for Tina. Mm. She had no felt sense of this type of boundary resilience uh, that is so necessary in taking risks interpersonally of even going out from your house you yeah. have no felt experience of it yeah my mind goes to the and i don't know where yours goes but even as you're reading that and saying that my mind goes to the unavoidable dynamics of the room like that inner subjective space absolutely to get to the no walls but even to like i could imagine like if there's there's probably the potential that it's just an enactment mm. where therapist isn't like affectively attuned and so then is just repeating the taking of the mother yes and so tell me what you're thinking and yeah. feeling. i'm going to take it from you yes yeah and i'll just sit here and sort of even repeat it back and like maybe give my interpretation yeah tell you how you're doing it wrong yeah in a way yeah yeah or like don't, yeah i mean don't you see that like you can't have walls and like different things like that like you know so i we go back to alan Turing's right brain psychotherapy so much but like i can't help but think in this case vignette and i know the purpose is to display very kind of um pragmatically the steps of memory reconsolidation but you can't ask the brain to get to a place of integration that they want without being affectively attuned. Well, I thought you were, I, I even thought that you were going to say, you can't ask the brain to show you its way of dealing with its biggest problem. If you're enacting the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're, I mean, that's, that means, brings me back to this paper that I wrote in undergrad called the first problem. I was dealing with, I think I've told you about this before, yeah. but of, you're asking Tina in this example to grapple with something with something that she can't figure out for the life of her in your presence. Yeah. Like you're asking her to deal with her biggest problem. 
by doing exactly the same dynamic. Yeah. And it's interesting that the authors then go on to talk about a secure attachment relationship with the therapist was not likely to produce transformational change because her depression stemmed from a very specific feature within her attachment schemas, namely her non-conscious assumption of being always entirely visible to her mother. It is so paradoxical to me that they don't touch this this element of what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know how much time you want to spend on this element, but it's so paradoxical to me because even in this, they then contradict themselves as in the article. The unlearning and erasure of that one construct required creating an experience that contradicted and disconfirmed the construct specifically. Namely, that collectively those observations imply that transformational change is caused directly by MR through the ECPE and is not a direct result of nonspecific common factors that had been present all through the sessions prior to completion of this therapy. So in three statements, they say it's not about the attachment, but the attachment has to happen. And if it doesn't, none of this is going to work anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about the attachment. And we've talked about this in previous sessions, like the level of like, okay, so what they're, what they want neurobiologically is in line very much with like Dan Siegel's, like their pre, they are prefrontal cortex oriented. Yes. So they, as the prefrontal cortex is um, a huge zone of integration and like effrontation. So like top down yeah. brain, like reorganization. Um, that's an epic center of that. So um epic center epicenter yeah but it's epic too um so what they're asking the brain to do is to take these deep core self other representations and network and to allow them to integrate and associate all the way up into the prefrontal cortex regions to then be like integrated with other dynamics yeah and i think what they mean by it's not about the attachment is that if you aren't like tapping in, you run the risk of just doing extinction. And we talked about this last week of, you run the risk of just doing extinction if you're not explicitly connecting in time space where this model comes from and who it was built from, like what experience built it. And then coming into the present moment and integrating that with a nuance Mm -hmm. rather than creating two separate internal working models. um, And then like, they're competing. Right. However, it is the attachment and the security of that in affect regulation that allows the brain to integrate in that way. Yep. There's a tremendous amount of integration that is happening that at any moment that Tina could just, I mean, I'm sure there were many sessions where it was just like the brain collapses. The brain mm. goes into an autonomic, like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Right. Like, and that, okay. Like we're, we're out of like the integration. We need to come back to regulating and safe attachment and secure attunement. Yeah. And then we can launch back up and try to keep integrating more. Yeah. And I think you see the authors wrestling with this because in that same, just that next line, it says, in some cases, the client's experience of the therapist's empathy, caring, or kindness itself serves as the disconfirmation of a symptom generating schema, fulfilling the ECPE. So it's like, 
<laughs> what is that? What is that? Yeah. How can you say that yeah, yeah. after you just said that yeah. the attachment isn't the isn't enough essentially? Yeah, and I I get that in some cases you know we need the attachment plus then exploring and finding new disconfirming experiences outside the therapy room. But if we're really talking about unifying psychotherapy as a field here, we need to reckon with the power of attachment. Sorry, I'm going to start again. We need to reckon with the power of primary intersubjective templating and how that then translates into secondary intersubjective templating. And that then works its way out to prove the necessity of these early on learned behavioral and intrapsychic uh, experiential processes. Yeah, and how that is a core dynamic of absolutely asking the fundamental brain to rework, yes. to reorganize. You cannot. You can't without hitting those parts of the triangle. Yeah, you just can't. Do the it. unconscious, implicit processes will the very pre- present strategy yes. over subjectivity. The very absolutely one hundred percent at the the very structures that you're relying on to process information are the ones that have been shaped by these experiences. So you have to talk about the experiences that shape those structures to expect anything else to happen. Without it, that's insanity. You're doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Yeah. Change, change, change. I can't. Yeah. The things you're telling me to change, the way I know that you're telling me to do that, are the things that are coding this as threat. Yeah. Yes. Okay. On that ground, yep. I wrote a statement. I wrote a question that I want to just like... Could it be what ends us today? It is, I think, what ends us and also kind of wraps together and then we'll look forward beyond this. But okay. I'm going to pose this question and then we can break apart some of the parts and just give context to where my brain was and then mm. just sort of spin up on it, come back down on it, yeah, play around with it. So uh, this is what I wrote. I haven't read this yet, so it may be bad. Um but I was jacked on it at the time. Is memory reconsolidation slash erasure essentially seeking to adjust the generalizability of the semantic memory structures by recontextualizing them in time space and allowing complexity to emerge through integration that can only be found through intersubjective affect regulation? Okay, so mm. <laughs> you have like a nice like mm, look on your face. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's exactly where my mind was going. Um, and I think that the article does get into that um, by talking about the survival positive nature of these learnings. Yeah. And so in that, then we need to trust the wisdom of the body. Uh, and in that, I'm not just talking about the, the body. I'm talking about the whole brain, whole body integration. Yeah. We need to trust that wisdom and seek to partner with it almost as a student comes to a master saying, can you help me understand? Yeah. It seems strange the yeah. way I'm experiencing it now. But yeah. Can you please help me see? Yes. Yeah. Therefore, recontextualizing, just as you're saying. Yeah. Helping us see that, oh, I totally understand the, yeah. the link that you made. That makes total sense. Can we maybe start to unplug it a bit yeah. and see if there's another one we can plug it into? Yeah. Maybe. And what, Or what happens if we just hold it? in tandem with another exactly and the association there will change it yes i think even you can work yourself backwards from my question yeah so affect regulation leads us into intersubjectivity not interobjectivity that's short strategies you're on great ground there yes very right right brain to right brain synchrony affect regulation leads us to intersubjectivity 
inner subjectivity opens us to emergence and integration of complex ideas and systems. Not the not the uh, extinction of, not yeah. getting rid of. We don't want to get rid of. We want to integrate, link and differentiate, which is creating healthy, healthy change and adaptivity. Yes. yes. Which then leads to complex complexity because our life across time has been contextualized. Mm. And therefore, our generalizability of our internal working models is more congruent mm. with the present as it has been in the past. And all of that is what memory reconsolidation seeks. Yes, absolutely right. So I, I, I'm in complete agreement with that. Um, <laughs> I yes. could not agree more exactly. Um, so with that, when we talk about EBT, when we talk about how do we bring that process to be? in the presentation of these symptoms and behaviors and, and things. And then how do we observe that scientifically and recommend uh, a certain degree of, uh, uh, of certainty that we can see this happen? That, I think, is a very tricky thing to do. You're talking much more about posture and uh, holding space yeah. than you are what you're doing in the room. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, this is where I, I actually like think Ecker's work could be the unifying catalyst. And his like, he's willing to hold the rigidity of a phenomenological construct of, you know, the steps of memory reconsolidation while also saying that this construct, this thing that we've learned about the brain tells us that it's about process, not protocol. Yeah. And so don't go for protocol. Go like look for the process in which this natural memory reconsolidative process yeah. emerges. It's a natural occurring phenomenon. Yeah. So you don't have to force it. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah like yeah, I like to force it. You don't have to like literally make it happen physically. Like, no. It's going to. It's going to. If the brain and body feel safe enough. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right that that is the unifying nature of memory reconsolidation. It's not necessarily figuring out the protocol to make the process happen, to force it in that way, but to hold that just in the, gosh, I feel like this is what we talk about in the trainings when we're saying, if just trust that if you, if you subjectively and authentically pursue this reality, this why, this how, then the what and the thing will come. The process will unfold. Yeah. The brain just does it when it feels like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. How do you get to that moment though? That's it. That's the process. Yeah. It's a dance. It's a it's a synchronous enactment of, of encounter. Uh -huh. We have to see each other and see what we have gone through before, not as the problem or not as as the root of all evil, but to see it as just something our system is trying to work out even still. Yeah. We're still trying to figure out that first problem. Yeah. Tina was still trying to figure out how do I have a self when I seem to be in relationship with a black hole? Yeah. My hide. Other equals black hole. Yes. Yeah. Hide. 
Yep. And that plays itself out everywhere. You can find that in every relationship, I'm sure. Every That being of relationship with work, relationship with other people, relationship with herself. Yep. Just don't exist. Yeah. Don't take up any space. Creating mass is what makes you susceptible to the pull of the black hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't have mass. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the second you start talking um, this way... I feel a tension in my gut around evidence-based protocols. Yes. Like that's their like, I mean, that's how we've come to randomly control a trial and produce an effective treatment that then says like, if you do the this, you'll get to the prop, you'll get to the change. Again, just such wishfulness. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear at this point that I, I'm pretty jaded when it comes to, and I think you are as well, yeah. when it comes to the power of the scientific method to demonstrate the actual cause of effect. Yeah. Just because I can control a situation in such a way that says, I can so clearly see that the effect happened because I introduced the intervention at this time, that doesn't mean that the intervention is the change. Yeah. In in such an ironic way, I feel like what we're talking about is like we have no problem with the episodic memory of the scientific community and the fact that they're doing these trials and finding results and, yeah. you know, picking up pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. What. Okay. Yeah. What kind cool. of we wrestle with is this semantic representation of what that means and then what we as clinicians ought to be fulfilling yes our learned behaviors yes as like part of this social system of yes. a community of therapists seeking to do good therapy yes it, it and i love that that kind of explanation it's not it's a social neuron theory explanation of <laughs> yes. the scientific field oh man <laughs> The amount of excitement. Oh, this is why I wish we had video. Sparky! Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sparking! Uh, Brain short circuit! <laughs> Too many connections per second to compute. Um, but in that, I love the critique of we have focused far too much episodically on demonstrating reliable validity. That's not what it's about. You can't, you have to objectify it literally to death. It can't be animate anymore. For you to say that this hypothesis is supported, that the change we observed was directly related to the intervention introduced. It has to be dead. And semantically, we've romanticized that to cope with our own frailty of not knowing what the hell is going on when a person shuts down and dissociates into such a degree that they fragment into something like schizophrenia. Don't objectify that to cope with your own inability to understand it. It's okay. Yeah. That person is working. That person is trying. That person is survival positive. They're alive right now. <laughs> Can we honor that? Or are we so afraid of our own position in this universe that we cling to objectifying rigidity yeah. or chaos? Yeah. Yeah. Pathologizes our own counter counter-reflex, 
Counteractive reflex. That's yes. what it is. Yeah. To the real. Yeah. 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 And again, we're not against the scientific inquiry of RCTs, no, random so control. so supportive yeah. of it. It's the semantic representation of what they mean and then the learning that we're supposed to embody as clinicians. When it stops there, yeah, that's when I have a problem. Yeah. When I'm... When we as clinicians are told to forget our own bodies yes, and forget our own subjectivity as like a protective factor, mm-hmm. that inhibits therapy. Yeah. And we're going to talk about like... Oh, so much more yeah, conversation. So much more about this of like, well, then how do we make sense of the positives they do find? Yeah. And what are the limitations? And, you know, how do we make sense of that? And yeah. what does the field of this say? And, oh, I'm so stoked for this. Yes. Very, very excited. I also love the little nugget of finding the social neuron neuron theory of the research field of, yeah, we don't have a problem with the, no. the episodic memory that they're engaging in these trials. We have a huge problem with the semantic representation of what we ought to do with it. Yeah, I have no qualms. Yeah, I have no qualms. <laughs> but am I supposed to one-to-one repeat this as like I'm reading from a a white binder and they come to a lab yeah and they live there yeah what no that's impossible this is a person in a complex universe this n- sorry this is an emergent process <laughs> in a complex sorry. emergent process complex emergent process inside of a complex yes. emergent process it is both embodied and relational okay <laughs> don't get your binder out of here okay like, <laughs> get your binder out don't of you there. go anywhere near that <laughs> <laughs> yes well mm. okay that is memory reconsolidation. There it is. And all of it's like, and again, I think, it, you know, we today probably did a little bit more like, ah, I don't no. know about that. Or maybe like, maybe like, yes what if we yes went and. a little bit? Yeah. Yes, yes and. and uh, transcendent include. Well, that's right. Well, um, <laughs> is it going to mess me up or no? <laughs> <laughs> is it going to mess me up? Um, but I do think there's so much, like even the posture of Ecker's work is so, yeah, I really no, do think it beautiful. could be incredibly unifying. Yes. And I think as we go on from here, you, you, we'll see these principles of hold and and find at the same time. Yeah. Um, over and over and over again. Yeah. And that this is just the beginning. Yeah. yeah. We're going to be talking here soon about uh, diagnostic frameworks and Ooh. how even in the definition of our language, we've planted this wishfulness. Come on. That's what I'm talking about. A wishfulness. Just sit with that, listeners. Ugh. The wishfulness behind diagnosis. having an answer yeah. and a diagnosis. Yep. That, well, yeah, if, now that we know the diagnosis, we can pair it with an EBT yeah. and we'll see change. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Depends on the compl- complex emergent process sitting across the room from you. That's right. Hmm. Very cool. This is where we need video is yeah. to see the little faces that we make. Yeah. Oh, yikes. Wow. Maybe. Ugh. Who knows? Yes. As always, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having the space. Absolutely. Love it. All right. And thank you, listener, yeah. for inhabiting this interesting intersubjective space of the 21st century. With us here. Yes. Take care. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. 
If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice that is an EMDR podcast hosted by Emdria-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians and conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas, and we hope to see you there soon.